Hello, and welcome back to The Jacobin Show. I'm Jen Pan. I'm here with Ariella Thornhill. Ariella, what's new? Oh, I moved my desk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, your, your, your background is vaguely That's different now. Things, There's like a yeah, different I angle. Zoomed out on my library. Um, yeah, I'm You were really getting excited. too many about your Stalin book. I so. was. I People are going to have to like zoom in and do some of the like enhance, you know, NCIS stuff to figure out what's on my bookshelf now. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, speaking of books, uh, we have the author of uh, Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism, uh, Kristen Godsey. She'll be coming on a little later. Um, and I also wanted to mention on the subject of books, Ariella, you are writing a book. Um, I don't know that we've ever talked about this on the Jacobin show before, uh, but it's called Socialist Sex Ed. It'll be out from Verso Books in 2022. Um, so before we bring on Kristen, like I wanted to talk to you about your book and also about the history of sex education in the U.S. So um, I guess just to kind of kick off, uh, tell us a little bit about your book. Well, this happened um, long before our Sex in the State episode <laughs> was conceived of. But um, when my son was little, I was having a conversation with some friends of mine who are socialists, um, like very active political women. And we were talking about how we're going to talk to our kids about sex ed. And as a teacher, as a former teacher, I know that the best approach is to be as open as possible to center things around, you know, pleasure and consent and the ways that bodies and preferences change and stuff like that. Um, but I wanted to like read a book and one of our, my friends suggested a book about sex ed in the Netherlands, which is great. Um, they, they have great sex education. And we all read the book together and it was really nice. There were some cool things in there. You know, they're much more open um, about pleasure and they're much more pleasure centered in their sex education. So there's a chapter about um, this woman, the author going to a sex museum with her daughter's class. And there's like a wall of, of screens of people having orgasms. And it's mm -hmm. like giving someone the gift of pleasure is a wonderful thing to share with them. Um, and she was shocked because, you know, this is an elementary right. school class, but they're extremely right. open. The thing that struck me though, and I think we'll talk about this a lot during this episode, and it's something that Kristen's work follows quite a bit, is that it completely ignored like the state institutions that enable that kind of message and that kind mm -hmm. of openness and the destigmatization of certain things. Mm -hmm. So it started me on a search frantically for like an age appropriate book, you know, to help work through these. And there are some great books by Seven Story, uh, for, out from Seven Stories, the publisher, Sex is a Funny Word is a great book. But I wanted something that kind of taught socialism and sex education at the same time mm -hmm. that moved away from this narrative of individual um, liberation, right? And looked at the way that society and state institutions change people's sex lives and affect the way that they interact with each other. And I couldn't find it. So I started to write it. The, uh, <laughs> the classic response to when, yeah. when there's no book <laughs> that's currently out there for you. Exactly. Um, I want to bring up just a couple of the illustrations from your book, um, because again, this you you are intending this book for a kind of younger adult reading audience, yeah. um, and they're really great illustrations, which you know Ariella shared with me before. So I thought These we are should by pull Katie some of them. Shelley. I've got to plug but, her; she's incredible. Katie Shelley is the illustrator. 
So yeah, this is the introduction to the chapter on bodies. The structure of the book is kind of zooming in up on, you know, who you are and what's happening to your body. It's for kids, you know, currently going through puberty. And then it's it's like, what's happening to your body? What happens to your body and someone else's body when they're together? And then mm -hmm. what happens to your body and everyone else's body? So the first chapter is about the changes in your body. And even those, the way that they're discussed in the US are definitely through the prism of a, a kind of gender binary that I think is scientifically inaccurate. For instance, you learn like, you know, if you're a boy, you'll grow hair on your face. Mm -hmm. That's not true. A lot of people grow hair on their face. <laughs> it can be really alienating to be presented information in a way mm -hmm. that looks at the differences and not the commonalities. Mm -hmm. um, so, so let's, I guess let's get, let's get into that sort of thorny history of sex education in the U.S. Because when we were talking earlier, um, you know, we we talked about how we both grew up in states where um, in in our public school system, the only sex education that we really got was abstinence only sex ed. And, you know, abstinence only sex ed is uh, this kind of classically conservative or it's a, a, a plank that a lot of conservatives push on public schools. Although I will mm -hmm. say that it actually grew out of Clinton's welfare reform in the 90s. So again, a little bipartisan consensus there. Um, and, you know, I, I think that, um, I think that when it comes to abstinence only sex ed, uh, you know, it's not, again, like I was saying, it's not just a kind of conservative, an ultra conservative red state thing. Um, it is imposed on many different states. I think part of what you're going to talk about is how things are just so different from state to state in the US. Again, thank you, American federalism, uh, that it's just really hard to make sense of what such sex education is today. Um, but I, I wanna bring up just one quick chart here. Uh, this is from the Kaiser Family Foundation um, and they show that a third at, in 2018, and we're looking at the orange slice here, um, a third of federal funding went to uh, abstinence only until marriage programs. So again, this is actually still a pretty widespread, uh, a widespread way of talking about sex in public schools. So I know that again, sex education is, um, or the history of sex education is something that you have been researching for your book and, you know, elsewhere. Um, so, so give us, give us the dirty, like what, what has the history of sex ed in the U S been like? Well, it's not great. And you're right. It's not just limited to this kind of conservative ethos, but I do think that there was a, a overarching idea that if you teach kids about sex in an honest way, you encourage them to have sex. I don't think those people have like interacted with high schoolers because I don't really think it's the teacher telling them, oh, here's what contraception is that makes mm -hmm. them want to have sex. Sex is a drive. Like hunger is a drive. Like sleep is a drive, right? These are, this is a human need that people have to varying degrees and it develops within your own body. It's not possible to shut it down by eliminating information about it. It would be like saying, well, we won't have hunger in America if we don't have ads for food, right? right? But abstinence-only sex ed was, as you said, a Clinton-era welfare reform um, 
policy that was passed in 1996, the bill earmarked $250 million over five years to teach Americans that engaging in sex before marriage is likely to have harmful psychological and physical effects, and that abstinence from extramarital sex is ex the expected standard of human behavior, which is like a really, really lo loaded statement. Mm -hmm. And that didn't go away. I want to pull up this ad um, that I asked Kale to get. That's a photo of a child. These were all over the New York City subways um, about five or six years ago. It says, I'm twice as likely not to graduate high school because you had me as a teen. And then teens were encouraged to text for more information about sex and abstinence. Obviously, this ad campaign drew a lot of ire. There were different iterations of it with sad looking babies being like, is he really going to stay with you just because I'm in the picture? Just horrible, 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 shame based approach to sex education. But it has deep roots in American culture and in mm -hmm. American politics. Mm -hmm. um, the goal was to actually target low income and minority communities and um, these programs popped up across the United States because it was generally believed that if you targeted these communities, you could prevent these kinds of ill outcomes. Mm -hmm. And I want to say something that might sound a little bad, but you do have worse outcomes if you have a child as a teenager in this country. Yeah, I was going to say that. It is very high stakes. Yes, that is not because you made a horrible decision in many choice in many instances people aren't really making a choice here mm -hmm. right that's one of the big things about this but the other thing is we've created a system where you get those bad outcomes exactly. so if you look exactly. at other countries you don't see the same things you're not going to see the same results you're not going to see single motherhood tied to the same kinds of outcomes for kids and mothers you're not going to see um, extramarital sex tied to the same outcomes as you see here. These are designed outcomes and they're outcomes that we can change, mm -hmm. not by individual shame, but by right. changing the institutions that people live within. Um, so I, I, I want to, oh, sorry, go on. Oh, I was going to say, Obama tried to change this a little bit. <laughs> this is one of the things that Obama did manage to do. He created um, a kind of centrist middle of the road approach to sex education that combined abstinence only programs with more comprehensive approaches to sex ed. And that program was called PrEP or personal responsibility education programs. Um, they both teach abstinence. The um, abstinence only curriculum obviously does, the PrEP curriculum does. Um, but they wanted the prep curriculum to also provide students with medically accurate information, which is not actually legally required mm -hmm. in a lot of states. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's, a, that's a little scary. <laughs> yeah, it, um, it is. So I, I, you know, because we've been talking about uh, uh, how, you know, sex and teen pregnancy in the U.S. because of the lack of social support is so high stakes. Um, I want to follow up by asking you about, um, so something that you've talked about in your book is that 
you believe that it's really important that sex education starts early and that it be low stakes. Uh, so, so that's kind of the opposite, I guess, of what it is in the U.S. today. So what do you mean when you say you want or you think that sex ed should be low stakes and how do we do that? So right now, you're exactly right. We have extremely high stakes messaging around sex. And part of that is a reflection of reality. Like we both said earlier, these are outcomes that do happen quite frequently if you have extramarital sex or if you get a sexually transmitted infection. We know that we can mitigate that by having institutions to provide free birth control or treat infections for free. Um, but the approach to sex ed in the U.S. is also high stakes because there is a general stigma around sex, a general belief that um, it can't be part of a healthy conversation. And it does two pretty awful things to a, a child's psyche. One is children naturally learn and explore how their bodies work, how they feel, and what it means to be interacting with another person's body. And that happens from the moment you're born. You can't, you can't recognize like shapes and colors, but you can see a human face. And the way that we respond to infants is a reflection of this deep social need to connect um, through touch and through look. So these things are inbuilt and we do provide children low stakes ways of learning about touch and consent and pleasure through free play in schools where they get to hug each other or they play house or they play in a sandbox. We create environments where they can safely learn social lessons and they're socially reinforced. But when it comes to sex, there's like a, a huge, huge barrier, right? And we live in a society now that I think is really questioning how we tackle this, mm -hmm. but has not yet accepted that it's a deep human need. Mm -hmm. um, we know that we need to do things to support other human needs so that people thrive. Touch is a human need. Connection is a human need. These go outside of sex, but they're nested within um, all of our ways of social interaction. Mm -hmm. So making a low stakes environment for kids to learn about sex ed means reframing how we approach sex, teaching sex as something that's pleasurable, something that's good, something that's a type of physical empathy with another person where you're connecting and learning about them, learning to listen, learning to be rejected in a safe way. Uh, learning to deal with some of the negative feelings that come along with that, possessiveness, mm -hmm. jealousy, all of these things are deeply human. They indicate how powerful of a need we have to connect. And if that feels denied, people can have a strong reaction. But instead, what we've got is a system that denies that sex is a need, denies that it's part of human experience, and places the kind of normal experimentation that kids do into a criminal category. And sometimes that's a very real criminal category. So we lack the public space and the private space for a lot of people to explore their bodies or somebody else's body. And we funnel these kinds of interactions onto social media. People will find a way to connect mm -hmm. no matter what. Um, but there are more and more laws cropping up that criminalize kids sending like a nude selfie to another kid as child pornography and basically mark them for life. 
when we know that there's a real difference between somebody being exploited and somebody kind of playfully trying to experiment with their sexual identity mm-hmm. through a photo on a phone. So I, I guess um, I, I agree with, you know, what you just laid out. And I actually suspect that like 99% of liberal feminists or like other progressives would also agree. Like we need a healthier relationship to, in, or a healthier relationship to not just our own bodies, but you know, to sex and the way that we interact with each other. Abstinence-only sex education is obviously failing kids, um, is is overly punitive and doesn't work. Like it doesn't actually yeah. reduce teen pregnancy rates or, or reduce, you know, STIs among teens or anything like that. Um, and, and so again, I think that a lot of progressives would agree, you know, we need a more, I guess you could call it sex positive approach to sure. talking about these issues. But what differentiates the kind of progressive sex positive model of sex education with socialist sex education? So the big difference there is um, one focuses on removing stigma, right? And there are great books about this. And that is important. Mm-hmm. Shout Your Abortion is is like, you know, maybe the foremost in this particularly because of the title, right? It's like, you get this medical procedure, don't be ashamed, you have the right to this, you have agency here, let's not alienate people because of their medical choices. But that assumes the choice is there. And that choice is not there for millions of people. And then when you look at it on a community level, if you lack access to abortion or contraception or treatment for sexually transmitted infections, it actually affects the broader community that you live in and everybody because we have sex with each other. We connect to each other. (laughs) If the pandemic has taught us anything, it's taught us that. Mm -hmm. Um, So we don't exist in a bubble of individual choices um, made under completely similar circumstances for every single person. Mm -hmm. And then the choices that are available to individuals affect the choices that are available to others and affect the outcomes for others. So I would say the liberal feminist or progressive approach around destigmatization is great, but it puts the cart before the horse because you can't destigmatize something that you can't have access to. This is true in so many kind of topics around sex and gender. If you want to help trans kids feel fully accepted and um, com- embraced in their communities, that's wonderful. But it's also an issue if they don't have access to the healthcare resources that can help them um, have agency over their health and their appearance and their body. Mm-hmm. So in so many of these circumstances, people are talking about an individual's validation, um, an individual's self-esteem, as though that's the foundation mm-hmm. of these kinds of social shifts rather than the economic reality and material reality of that person being the foundation of of their self-esteem validation and self-worth. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a really good way of putting it. And it makes me think that the kind of disjunct is just the classic disjunct between a kind of liberal idealism and like what we might call materialism. Um, so, you know, I think so. So to go to, to go back to your point about abortion and, you know, shouting your abortion, I agree. Like, that's great. Um, people, you know, abortion should be destigmatized, but I don't think, I mean, you, 
you alluded to this. I think that something like over 80% of counties in the US lack an abortion provider. Um, yep. And of course, you know, it is not, uh, it, it's, it's not, it's, uh, it's not federally funded, right? So, you know, cost is oftentimes a, a barrier as well. So it isn't just about stigma. Um, but I think it's fair to say that the material barriers help perpetuate the stigma. Um, yes. So, yeah. So I, I actually that's want absolutely to- true. And I, I wanna... think that's true of a broad array of things like mm -hmm. housing, the way that housing affects pleasure. You know, the progressive and liberal narratives focus a lot on oppressed groups and the way that oppressed groups lack access to like a broader category of human rights. So mm -hmm. you hear people talk about the black experience in America and it's like, I can't even feel safe. And this is happening with people focusing on anti-Asian discrimination and hate saying, I don't even feel safe in the spaces that I'm in. I don't feel like I can go and have a normal day where I'm not going to be threatened. It's obviously true in those cases that these things are happening, but we don't look at other issues in the same way. So when people talk about the lack of access to housing or, or the wealth gap for Black people or um, issues around gendered pay, they're linking material issues to people's like broader enjoyment of life. We have the same thing going on mm -hmm. with material issues and people's broader enjoyment of pleasure and other people. Mm -hmm. So there are barriers to pleasure that a bunch of people are facing. There's ine there's inequity there and inequality mm -hmm. there, but we don't really have a framework of talking about it because actually the need is so broad that it doesn't fit like a particular set of oppressed people. And we have right. a much harder time in this country saying like material deprivation and lack of resources and institutional support changes people's life outcomes in general, mm -hmm. right? And there mm -hmm. are certain things that are good for everyone mm -hmm. yeah. because we share them as like human beings. So on that note, I, I want to go back to an example that you had mentioned earlier about the Netherlands, um, because when I was, you know, looking, looking at like examples of different countries' sex education programs, I also came across an article in the New York Times, which talked about how, which, which contrasted the kind of like, abstinence only puritanical American style of sex ed with uh, sex ed in France and the Netherlands. Um, this is by a writer called Pamela Druckerman, who I think, you know, wrote a book about how French people raise their children. Um, that was a very popular topic, like moms in other countries for a while. French women yeah. eat cheese and don't get fat. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was like part of that. Um, but in in so I want to read a quote from her article because it was actually really interesting. And you and again, you talked about this um, earlier, but she writes, apparently the Dutch are at the forefront of sex education and they have little trouble bro broaching the topic. Parents in the Netherlands have lots of casual age appropriate talks about sex with their kids over many years, beginning when children are small. Mandatory sex education begins in elementary school and includes lessons on respecting people who are transgender, bisexual, or gay. So obviously that sounds great. And I know that, you know, from your research or from the book that you had mentioned earlier, you have like other examples of how great Dutch sex ed is. Um, but I think, you know, what, what we're trying to get at is it's not just a matter of culture. It's not that the mm -hmm. Dutch have just figured out a way to be more enlightened than Americans what else is going on here? Like, why is this picture incomplete? And why can't we just, why can't we just look at what the Dutch do and replicate that here? 
Yeah, you know, I think the way people understand these other models has a blind spot because we have a way of kind of nesting issues within the individual. And so these kinds of narratives of changing individual thoughts and feelings are extremely popular with liberals. That's our approach to racism, right? Is like make people nicer um, or I don't know, make them, shame them. <laughs> right, I was gonna say make them feel bad about their own yeah, racism or something. Tell them they can't cry. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, these, these ways of saying, um, if we make the following individual interventions and change people's thoughts and feelings, we'll change the institutions or suddenly we'll just have better and different outcomes. Mm -hmm. But that's just a lie. You know, it's a nice thought that I think is based in a primarily democratic um, ontology. I hate to use that word. <laughs> <laughs> You're allowed this one time. <laughs> you know, people believe that our society is made up of discrete individuals' beliefs and feelings, mm -hmm. and that that's what's shaping our world. And that would be great. And that is the goal of democracy. And for democratic socialists, that's what we want. Mm -hmm. But we do not live in that world. We don't live in a world where being a single mother as a teenager is hard because the people around you are meaner to you. We don't live in a world where being a trans kid is difficult just because people are intolerant of your identity. That's a big part of it, but it's mm -hmm. also because we don't have a housing guarantee. Right. We don't have the ability for people to have consistent, um, well-paying jobs. We don't have the ability for people to fall back on a social safety net that would protect them and make sure these consequences aren't so dire. And we don't have universal health care. Yeah, we're not the Netherlands. We don't right. have the economic structure of the Netherlands. We haven't taken certain things out of the market. One of the things that's really striking when you dig into this um, narrative is that the Dutch have like a beautiful package of free services right. for teens specifically who are sexually mm -hmm. active. So in the book I read, you know, she's talking about how it seems like a much more feminist society in the Netherlands. And she's right that there are certain things that are cultural, right? Stigma. The museum. Yeah, the museum. <laughs> it's definitely a vector of culture creation, I guess. But the other part is 100% of the cost of contraception, except for condoms, is covered by universal state insurance until you're 21. And the same is true with an abortion. If you're under 16, you need permission from a parent to receive an abortion. But if you don't want to, or there's a circumstance where you can't ask that parent, a doctor can give you permission. The morning after pill is available over the counter at pharmacies. You can have consultations with doctors and um, STI checks and treatment that's free and confidential. So there's two things going on. One is like many adults here don't have that. But the other is that teenagers absolutely don't have that. And teenagers' medical rights vary state to state. Mm -hmm. as does their sex education, as does the healthcare systems that they're within. And so you see this kind of fracturing out of worse or better um, outcomes for people, depending on the community they live in, simply because of their access to resources within that community. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
So it looks like we uh, are about to bring on Kirsten. Uh, but before we do that, I just want to, I, I have one last quick question for you. Do you think the state should be involved in sex? Because, you know, we've been talking a lot about um, state interventions, I guess. But I guess, you know, for me, uh, this is maybe like the one area in which I like am maybe vaguely libertarian. Like, I don't think it's any of the state's business what I'm doing with my sex life and it shouldn't be the state's business. But I think that what you're getting at or like what we've been talking about in a sort of roundabout way is that the state can make interventions in other areas of life in order to make sex not its business. Maybe that sounds a little convoluted, mm -hmm. but I don't know. Do you, do you agree? <laughs> yeah, I think the state is already involved in everyone's mm -hmm. sex Exactly. Life. I think we've been having this, what people think is a culture war, is not a culture war with sex. It's a resource war. And mm -hmm. the right is winning. They are mm -hmm. shutting abortion clinics down. They are making it more and more difficult to get contraception. They're making it more difficult to just get basic access to health care. Right. So the state is already involved. And our job as, you know, political actors is to say how it should be involved. And mm -hmm. I think you're right. When you give people the broad economic foundation for freedom, like the right to public space, the right to private space, uh, a guaranteed home, the right to a guaranteed income and health care that's accessible and easy to get to, you enable a broader, a much broader set of freedoms. Mm -hmm, and exactly. All of those are related to our sociality. Sex mm -hmm. is just one of those things. I think putting such a strong emphasis on it has been to the detriment of uh, US. Well, depends on if you're on the right then you've loved it. <laughs> yeah, you're like, this is the, this is the best. <laughs> yeah, they're fighting that war and trying to make it seem like, you know, anybody on the side of sexual freedom, gender freedom, what have you, is like depraved. Mm -hmm. You know, we saw this with um, LGBTQ rights in the 90s and early 2000s. There have been really good strides made um, mm -hmm. on the cultural end in the US. People are generally more tolerant there's an expansion of the um, understanding of what a relationship looks like and who it's mm -hmm. with. Mm -hmm. But we have not made any of those strides with the kind of material basis for freedom that is the material basis for sexual freedom as well. Mm -hmm. I think uh, that is actually the perfect note to bring out our guest, Kristen Godsey. Um, Kristen is professor of Russian and East European studies and a member of the graduate group in anthropology at the University of Pennsylvania. She's the author of 10 books, uh, including, of course, Why Women Have Better Sex Under Socialism and Other Arguments for Economic Independence. Uh, this book, I just learned from Kale, has been translated into many different languages, including a number of Eastern European languages. So kind of coming full circle to the topic at hand. Kristen, welcome to The Jacobin Show. Thank you so much for having me. It's really fun to be here. <laughs> Glad to have you. Um, so, you know, uh, as as we just saw, your book has been translated into a number of different languages. Uh, you have been interviewed in Jacobin. I believe you've written for Jacobin. Uh, your argument has been in the New York Times and other, you know, large publications. So I, I think that uh, a, a fair a fair number of Jacobin's viewers are probably familiar with your argument already, but just to get everybody kind of up to speed, um, I wondered if you could sort of kick off by just laying out for us why women in the Soviet bloc had better sex than their counterparts in capitalist nations. 
Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it basically has to do with the subtitle of the book, which is, you know, and other arguments for economic independence. I think it's a complicated argument. I try to lay that out in the book very clearly in the sense that, you know, obviously Eastern Bloc countries were more secular. So there was less influence of religion. Um, and, you know, some people say, well, there were just less to do because, you know, the, there was less shopping and less entertainment and fewer television channels. And certainly there weren't like phones and things like that. So I've heard that argument that, you know, maybe everybody was having, you know, more sex or better sex back um, before we were all distracted by various screens. But the argument that I really focus on in the book is this idea that the expansion of the social safety net, as well as investments in women's education, training, and their incorporation into the labor force allowed women to choose their partners. And I, I primarily speak here about heterosexual relationships, of course, because I'm talking about like communist era, um, Eastern Europe. But because women had a fair amount of economic independence, they were able to choose their partners on the basis of love, affection, you know, um, attraction, uh, rather than choosing their partners on the basis of whether or not um, your partner can pay your rent or put food on the table. So basically, human relationships, and particularly sexual relationships, become less of a transaction, they become less commodified. And when they're less commodified, as somebody like Alexander Kollontai predicted, then people generally tend to be with people that they love rather than people that they need in order to survive. And so at the end of the day, I look at um, what happened before 1989 in Eastern Europe and what happened before um, 1991 in the Soviet Union and then what happened afterwards. And I use the collapse of communism as a natural experiment to say, okay, well, guess what happens when capitalism comes? people's sexuality gets commodified all over again. So it actually is the proof. The proof is in the pudding, right? You mm -hmm. can see very clearly from a sociological point of view that you go from less commodified, less transactional relationships to more commodified, more transactional relationships when your safety, social safety nets have been eviscerated and when women's sexuality once again becomes a commodity. Yeah, great. I, I loved your book. I'm using it in my book. <laughs> Um, I think it proves just a really fundamental point about the way that relationships can be warped depending on, you know, your reliance on those individuals that you're with and the way that you said these things get wrapped up into a kind of market of commodities. Can you talk about how ideas of women's sexual freedom in the Soviet bloc differed from like second wave feminist um, or the kind of liberal feminist approach to sexual freedom? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that um, this is like a really important point because second wave sexuality, you know, often tended to be very much about the individual. Um, it was, it, it, you know, as all second wave feminist, liberal feminist sorts of ideologies are about individual self-actualization, individual autonomy, um, finding kind of a way for people to you know, thrive in a capitalist society without being oppressed by sexist discrimination. Whereas in the Eastern Bloc, um, and, and I would say that this is not only true of the Eastern Bloc countries, I think this is also true of like the democratic socialist countries in Scandinavia, sexuality is seen as much more of a, like a community resource, right? Like if people are having better sex, if people are having better relationships with their partners, if people are happier at home, 
then there's less isolation, there's less anger, there's less need for like consumption, buying things that you don't really want just because you feel lonely and empty and you need to somehow fill this chasm in your soul <laughs> with, you know, with some consumer goods because you don't, mm -hmm. you know, have a have a good set of relationships. So so I have friends and colleagues in in Poland and in in Czechia as well as in the GDR and, and, in, and in Russia, who do research on specifically this question. And I think the key thing is that unlike in the West, where sexuality was always about sort of the kind of four-stage sexual response theory, this idea that the right kind of stimulation, the right kind of technique is going to um, make it really good for you. Mm -hmm. the, the Eastern Bloc countries had a much clearer understanding of sort of the wider social implications. Like if you're really stressed, if you have massive amounts of economic precarity, if you don't know how you're going to pay your rent, or you don't know like whether your kids are going to be able to eat, it turns out it's really hard to get in the mood. Um, and so their conception of sexuality was like a holistic conception of sexuality. It was much more capacious than any sort of discourse that we had in the West during this period of the second wave feminist movement. So I, I want to uh, follow up on that uh, just by, you know, bringing up the point that um, although obviously in uh, obviously in the Western world or like within capitalist nations during this time period, uh, you don't see the kind of social provision that uh, the Soviet bloc guaranteed to women. Um, you do see other movements towards sexual freedom. So, you know, during the 1960s, there's, of course, the kind of, you know, new left countercultural uh, sexual revolution, um, feminist movement, of course, uh, as you were just saying, uh, placed an emphasis on individual autonomy. Um, and I think that in the US, what we've seen in terms of the movement towards sexual freedom has been a kind of combination of like, like you were just referring to like a kind of consciousness raising, right? Like we need to kind of understand ourselves and our relationships with other people a little better. Um, and then also legal battles. So decriminalizing, you know, abortion and homosexuality. Uh, I think, you know, more recently we've seen the rise of things like affirmative consent laws or, you know, more, mm -hmm. more kind of legislation geared toward uh, preventing sexual assault or, or uh, what have you. So I'm just, I, I, I guess I'm wondering, um, and, and I just want to say like, obviously in the US, Yes, uh, uh, sexual mores or like sexual norms are way less fraught than they were 50 or 100 years ago, right? So it's sure. like, so progress <laughs> has been made. So I guess my question for you is, is what happened in the US just a different way of getting to the same endpoint? And obviously, like, we're not at the, you know, endpoint of like sexual liberation for everybody. But um, what do you make of that? Yeah, so um, the scholar Dagmar Herzog, who um, who has done really wonderful work on sexuality in East versus West Germany, she really talks about sexual revolution versus sexual evolution. And I really like her framing, right? So in the West, sexuality was part of kind of a countercultural movement, right? So to the extent that people were standing up and sort of standing in the streets and saying, this is something that we are claiming for ourselves in opposition to the state. I think that the difference is, and, and I, I caught um, your conversation about whether or not the state should be involved in sex. I think that the difference is, is that in Eastern Europe, the conditions were made, um, you know, they, 
basically the sexual evolution was kind of driven in some ways by state policies around sexuality. So mm-hmm. East European mm-hmm. countries, you know, make abortion illegal before, uh, sorry, make abortion legal, mm-hmm. you know, um, before the West, you know, with the very important exception of Romania and Albania and the Soviet Union during the Stalinist era. But the Soviet Union is the the first country in the world to make abortion on demand legal in 1920. And it stays legal until 1936 when Stalin reverses it. And then after Stalin's death, it becomes legal again. Um, Homosexuality was decriminalized very early on in the Eastern Bloc, especially in Czechoslovakia, the GDR, and even ironically, interestingly, in in Catholic Poland, where there was a very, um, you know, sort of robust subculture going on within things that you would not imagine were happening within the communist era. Um, But the reason why, and it's not because it like, it's hard for Westerners to understand this. It's not because people went out in the streets and demanded Mm -hmm. their rights. It's more because the communist state was really concerned with basically people having babies. Like Mm -hmm. they wanted they wanted women to be in the labor force, but they realized that when women went out into the labor force, if they weren't supported, the birth rate dropped. Mm-hmm. And part of having a higher birth rate is 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 basically facilitating more sexual activity among your population, <laughs> right? Um, and but then even beyond that, in the case of the GDR and Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia, which were very liberal in terms of um uh, same-sex rights. They also understood that that this, like this, was the, much earlier than in the West. They understood that, like some people are just that way. And so, in Catholic Poland, right? Um, my colleague Agnieszka Kozianska says um, she found that the the communist government would hire priests to allow people who wanted to transition to the other gender to help them along with their their transition. This is an under-communist in Catholic Poland. Why? Because, okay, you know, you're a Catholic man and we want to make sure that you're going to be a good Catholic woman. (laughs) 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 So the reasoning is really weird. It's not at all about individual autonomy. It's about finding your place within society. And many of these Eastern Bloc countries really cared that that people were happy in their relationships because they understood that there were these travel restrictions and these consumer shortages and there were all these downsides of the regime. We should not gloss over that at all. But I think Mm -hmm. it's really important to understand that states invested in women's reproductive rights. They invested in extremely liberal sex education books, right? Mm -hmm. Which give like very detailed instructions on how to please partners Mm -hmm. um, with diagrams and everything, right? So, and and (laughs) if you read the introduction to these books, it's always like, as a socialist society, we have a responsibility to make sure that our citizens are having proper loving socialist sex. So they're not like distorted by the kind of commodified, disgusting, you know, problematic sex of the, of the capitalist world (laughs) where people are, are, you know, people are becoming transactions or whatever. So, so I think it's really, it's a very different model. And uh, I like the idea of evolution versus revolution, whereas you can become very sexually liberated without going out onto the streets and demanding certain rights. 
in in the case of Eastern Europe, the state just kind of gave people those rights. Now, there are some exceptions, and there are always going to be exceptions. Um, but, you know, there, there are so many wonderful examples. Josie McClellan has a book called Love in the Time of Communism. And she really mm -hmm. talks about the nudist culture, the Freikorperkultur in Eastern Germany, and how initially the state was totally opposed. This is a nudist culture, mm -hmm. totally opposed to it. Um, and then when they realized that people were going to do it anyway, because they liked being, you know, these they would they, there were these nudist camps and nudist beaches, and it just be. And then the regime said, "Yes, this is a wonderful expression of the egalitarianism of socialism." So. Mm -hmm. You know, I just think it's really important to understand that the political economy is very different in these two contexts, but the outcomes can be very similar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that um, I think that, you know, what you said about this kind of idea of uh I don't, I, I guess like a top down or like a state directed kind of social policy being anathema to Americans. That's, that's so true. I mean, I think that, you know, yeah. even, <laughs> or especially on the left, you know, we, we don't like to think of any kind of social movement as coming out of anywhere, but like the bottom, like, you know, like the bottom rungs of society, like the grassroots, you know? And I think that, um, but, but so, so that's just a really fascinating story. And, yeah, I, and yet, sorry, just to interrupt you there. And yet when we think about the second wave of feminism, Right. Um, the first presidential commission on the status of women, which is formed in 1961 by President Kennedy. I'm sorry. That is a top down. Mm -hmm. That's a top down committee. Eleanor mm -hmm. Roosevelt was the chair of that. And that report is published in 1963 at the same time as Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique. Mm -hmm. So we have a myth of the grassroots in our country. Yeah. But at the end of the day, there was so much that was happening from the top down. It's just that we don't see it and we don't like to talk about it because it does, it sort of, it violates our feeling of like having fought and, you know, for these mm -hmm. hard won rights, right? Mm -hmm. um, in fact, the government was very, very, very much involved, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah, I think that's extremely disturbing to Americans. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they yeah, don't no like the idea. It. I think there's, and the myth about, you know, sexual freedom um, and the free love movement in America is really grounded in this idea that you have like some libertines who take to this, you know, get in a van and drive to San Francisco and, you know, it's a free love <laughs> and flowers and acid. Hair, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but when you start to unpack that, you know, what you have is like, the emergence of teenage culture that's being commodified for the very first time through movies and music and television. And you also have a lot of like um, extremely disenfranchised, upset youths coming together to try to recreate societies that model the institutional support that you did see um, under <laughs> certain Soviet um, economic structures, right? So that's what a commune is. A commune exactly. is a place where right. risk is shared, where you have food for everybody. Um, the foundation of the free love movement is people trying to make these makeshift sort of top-down structures that influence and allow for certain types of sexual expression and freedom that they wouldn't normally have. But, you know, in the U.S., our narrative of that is just like, they were just a bunch of cool radicals, like doing it for themselves, right. they probably would have been a lot better off if, you know, they had actual state support for food and housing. 
you'd have a lot fewer cults and maybe the Manson family wouldn't have existed. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> or Jonestown, right? I mean, right. the other thing, you know, I think that like Kate Wygand has this wonderful book called Red Feminism. Um, there's also Eric McDuffie's book, Sojourning for Freedom, which really talks about the ways in which sort of um, uh, black feminism in this country has its roots in the CPUSA. A lot mm -hmm. of feminist organizers were labor organizers or had socialist roots. And so we've really whitewashed that out of our history of feminism. The, the idea that there was a first wave that got mm -hmm. suffrage and then a second wave, um, you know, in the 60s and 70s, there's like a whole like Dorothy... Um, uh, I can't remember. Dorothy Sue Cobble has this argument about the missing wave of feminism, which is all the socialists and communists in the mm -hmm. 30s, 40s, and 50s. And I think that, you know, as, as it, women who are interested in like women's emancipation and sexual liberation and all of these questions, we really do ourselves a disservice by ignoring the existence of this sort of quote unquote missing wave of women mm. because there were many, many women who were there on the front lines fighting for things like birth control, you know, fighting for things like um, all sorts of uh, women's uh, participation in unions and, you know, all sorts of things that get sort of like whitewashed out of the women's movement later when it really becomes mm -hmm. more about, you know, mm -hmm. um, white women getting access to professions that they were otherwise shut out of or being able to go to Harvard or Yale or yeah. Columbia or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. You so, see this with the welfare rights movement where it's primarily women of color saying I have the right to state assistance and it cannot be denied because my like boyfriend is staying with me. Right. Yeah. Um, that is an extremely powerful intervention. And I think one that gets left out of the conversation a lot because they're talking about their right to sexual and economic freedom, to support and to dignity and respect and privacy. Absolutely. And like, and, and, and this goes beyond the United States. Um, I, I have this other book called Second World, Second Sex, which really looks at the um, intersections between East European women's organizations and women's organizations in the global South. And I'm really struck by how women in the global South in particular talk about how East European women from these state socialist countries were really important allies because the feminism that they wanted to instantiate was a feminism that required public provision of basic services. It was not about a kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, micro loan, entrepreneurial, mm -hmm. social entrepreneur feminism, right? Which is like what we've ended up with, unfortunately, um, today. But there was a whole different model, which was really about making claims on the state, making mm -hmm. sure that the state was responsible for, you know, um, dealing with the, Im the, the, the imbalances, right, in the labor market that the free market creates when you have one part of the population that is imagined to be responsible for caregiving, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that it's really important to talk about the ways in which even though I understand that it's anathema to Americans to under to, to realize <laughs> that some of these social movements actually really do need support. But but that's that's what democracy, right? When we think about democracy, mm -hmm. aren't we actually talking about influencing the state? And economic democracy, I mean, I'm sure you know all of your listeners are aware of this argument, right? But obviously, if we are making claims for a certain kind of life that we imagine things like housing is a human right or healthcare is a human right. Who, to whom are we addressing those claims? We're addressing them to the state, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So if, 
if you live in a world where the state has already given you those things, right, does it make them any less valuable? Mm-hmm. The argument in the United States is that somehow it does, because since the state gave you women's rights or the state gave you health care or the state gave you, you know, housing, then it's not really valuable. Whereas somehow if we've demanded it and then only after a really, really long fight somehow gotten it, then it's OK. And just yeah. to sort of push this back even further, um, like. Wouldn't you think of the Russian Revolution as a big fight? <laughs> I, I was literally a, just about to ask you about that. <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. wasn't that a demand? I mean, yeah. so, so a bunch of people got together, they rose up and they demanded something. I mean, they overthrew yeah, a state right. and then created a state of their own. Right. But, you know, I, I, I just think that the, the, the key question here is, you know, what is the role of the state vis-a-vis society? And mm-hmm. For all sorts of questions, whether we're talking about housing, whether we're talking about healthcare or education or childcare or sexual education or whatever, um, we have to deal with the state. We can't ignore the state. Mm -hmm. I mean, in a beautiful world, yes, we could all set up some kind of independent communes out and, you know. I um, mean, it worked in the 60s. Yeah, Yeah, we're so great. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. We know. We we have experience Mm -hmm. with some of these things. So I think it's worth really, you know, conceptualizing why it is that Americans have this knee-jerk reaction to that. So I, I actually do want to linger on the Russian Revolution for a second, because I know you have written about Alexandra Kollontai, and um, I know that, you know, after the Bolsheviks taking power, there was there was a, a sort of Russian sexual revolution, right? Can you yeah. talk about that a little bit? Like, talk about what kind of factors went into that. And then maybe after that, like, tell us about why it collapsed. Okay, so um, so the, the why it collapsed is really easy. Stalin, like <laughs> right. that's just a, there's one word answer to that question, um, <laughs> but I can elaborate a little bit more on that. But yeah, so I think what a lot of people do not realize is that between 1917 and 1936, there were um, there were three Soviet family codes. There was a family code in 1918. There was a second family code in 1926, and then there was the family code that Stalin passed in 1936 which reversed most of the progress of the two earlier family codes. And then in 1944, there was a family edict, which made it even worse. So this early moment of sexual revolution in Russia, which I really encourage everybody to read Wendy Goldman's book, Women's State and Revolution. It is a fantastic deep dive into what was going on in Russia, all of the jurisprudence around these various family codes between 1917 and 1936. So, Alexandra Kollontai, immediately after the Russian Revolution, is made the Commissar of Social Welfare. And she's extremely influential in setting Soviet family policy. And one of the things that she does is she allows for divorce, which is huge um, in a country where the Russian Orthodox Church basically said that marriage was a sacrament that lasted for life, no matter whether or not your husband was an alcoholic or was abusive or abandoned you, right? So Kollontai, you know, gets the women's vote very early on, gets the support of women by allowing women to actually petition for divorces. She also has an incredible article in 1923 called Make Way for Winged Arrows, which I've, I've talked about at length um, on, on my podcast. And I think everybody should go out, right? 
tomorrow morning, first thing, and read this article. Um, it's Make Way for Winged Eros, A Letter to Working Youth. And she does a Marxist political economy of love. And she basically makes this really interesting claim that as um, society moved from sort of um, ancient society to feudalism, from feudalism to capitalism, and from capitalism to socialism, our ideal concept of love will change depending on the overall political economy of the, con of the um, societies within which we live. And she really talks about what is necessary in order to move from the capitalist conception of love where sexuality is a transaction, where love is a transaction, where people become each other's private property to a more socialist, more um, welcoming, opening conception of love where we have a, a, a broader social safety net and therefore we have broader comrades and, and emotional support and, and a variety of other things that she, she goes into great detail in, in this article. But what she does as Commissar of Social Welfare, Lenin empowers her to actually do things like create public cafeterias and canteens and mending cooperatives and childcare facilities and children's homes. I mean, Kolontai starts kind of completely reimagining what family will look like in the Soviet Union. They experiment with partible, partible paternity, whereby if a woman is having sexual relations with multiple men and she becomes pregnant, then each of those men is the father of the child. So there can be multiple fathers. So she's like, let's, why should we only have one father? Why not have like a mother and three fathers? Um, you can imagine that the Bolsheviks, the men are not really pleased <laughs> here, right? Um, as I said, abortion becomes legal in 1920. Um, and, and there's all of this discussion about sexuality, about sexual freedom, about women's emancipation, what it means to have some kind of like sexual, um, you know, relationship as a part of the revolution, as something that will support revolutionary goals. So, so all of this is this foment is happening in the in the um, in the early years of the the revolution. Unfortunately, as I'm sure those of you who are familiar with Russian history know. There's the First World War, then there's a terrible civil war, then there is an awful famine. Um, then Lenin, after war communism, institutes the new economic policy and basically slowly all of Alexander Kollontai's work is undone, largely because there is a huge um, urban population of orphans. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and they don't know what to do with these orphans. They were hoping they would be able to put them in like, you know, really nice, fancy state orphanages. It doesn't work out. They don't have the resources. The Soviet Union is, is really struggling economically. And then Lenin dies and then Stalin comes into power. He sort of puts up with, you know, Kolontai gets exiled. She ends up going off into diplomatic service. They just want her out of the way because her ideas about sexual freedom and love are just too crazy. And then in 1936, as I said, because the birth rate is plummeting, because Stalin is totally paranoid that he's going to be invaded by the Germans at any minute, which turns out, you know, not to be completely false. Um, but in 1936, he he passes a very strict family code that reverses all, um, makes it more difficult to get divorced, um, makes abortion illegal. 
basically takes all of the social infrastructure that was trying to communalize housework, you know, the, the public cafeterias and the canteens and the mending cooperatives and the child homes and sort of does away with them to try, doesn't completely, but basically really re- establishes the nuclear family as a place where most of the care work and child rearing is going to be done in order to uh, preserve resources for the expansion of the Soviet economy and eventually, you know, the defense of the Soviet Union against what at the time Stalin sees as an imminent Western attack. Mm -hmm. I think so. Following from that, um, I, I do want to ask you a question about the nuclear family, I guess, um, because I think on the left, we sometimes hear uh, this idea of the abolition of the family, right? Like this famously comes up, of course, in the Communist Manifesto. Um, and I do want to be clear, I think, at least from my reading, what Marx and Engels were getting at was not that they were like, we need to abolish the nuclear family, like nobody can be in a nuclear family. Um, my reading, at least, is that they were saying there's a kind of bourgeois ideal of the nuclear family that's imposed on the working class, but the working class actually, because of capitalism and exploitation, can never really achieve that ideal. Um, and mm -hmm. I think that Kollontai gets at that in some of her work as well. Um, but I think what's interesting is both uh, in Marx and Engels, in the Communist Manifesto, and I believe in Kollontai's uh, uh, pamphlet, Communism and the Family, they both acknowledge that this is a, a like abolishing the family is a deeply unpopular idea. Like even though, even though they acknowledge that this bourgeois ideal is hurting the working class, they're like, we have to be really careful because nobody really wants to abolish the family. <laughs> um, so I, I guess I'm wondering uh, if you if you have thoughts on whether abolition of the family is a useful framework for sort of thinking through ideas of sexual freedom and even gender justice. Yeah. Oh, wow. So like if we had like five hours, I could, I could really <laughs> yeah, get just a small this. question. <laughs> I think about this a lot. Okay. Yeah. I, and, and, and like right now I'm reading around this question from an anarchist point of view, mm -hmm. from a utopianist point of view. I'm, I'm coming at this from a lot of different ways, not only from the communist and socialist point of view. So, so the one thing that I will say is that um, a lot of people don't realize that Engels wrote two drafts of the Communist Manifesto in 1847 before the 1848 version that he co-authors co with Marx. And in those two drafts, Engels actually says that children should be taken away from their mothers and raised communally as early as possible. So basically, it's kind of left vague, but you get the sense that it's sort of after weaning, right? That language, interestingly, is taken out of the Communist Manifesto. And um, and I would love to know why. If it, you know, was it Jenny mm -hmm. Marx? Like what exactly happened in that <laughs> room when they decided, you know, that's kind of a little too radical. Like we're gonna like overthrow the world, but like we shouldn't, you know, let children be taken away from their parents. Mm -hmm. um, and so we actually do have some good um, empirical data on this when we look at the kibbutzim in Israel, because early kibbutz sneaks actually did raise their children in common away from their parents. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, you know, this is, a, this is, and it, it didn't work out so well um, for a variety of, of reasons um, when the children slept away. But when they went back to a, a model where the children slept with their parents, but were at daycare all day, then it, were, it ended up working out a lot better. And 
there are all sorts of different questions about why it was, you know, some people say that the, the, the women that um, cared at uh, cared for the children at night um, were less attentive than the women who cared for the children at day. But anyway, this is, you know, we can get into the weeds of this, this discussion. Like I said, there's a lot of really interesting empirical data that we can talk about when we talk about what is the best for children. Mm -hmm. but, but, the, um, but the nuclear family, look, the key thing about the nuclear family that both Marx and Engels, as well as Kollontai and Zetkin and August Babel and all of these early socialist theorists were um, honing in on was that the nuclear family is the vehicle for the intergenerational transfer of property, mm -hmm. right? And if we raised our children more collectively, we it would be easier for us to pass on our property more collectively, right? Like we would be less attached to property, right? And so what Kolontai says is that um, that that the problem with what happened in the Soviet Union is they really focused on the political economy, they focused on the public sphere, and they really didn't want to deal with the private sphere, partially because most of the leaders in the Soviet Union were men, and you know they weren't really willing to challenge the the coziness right of their domestic situations the way that that women like Kolontai really were and I would argue um, women like uh, Inessa Armand for instance as well or or Clara Zetkin like they were really out there on the front lines of this issue and you know to his credit August Babel as well so but when we talk about the abolition of the family I think that we need to make a distinction between you know, um, first of all, what is the family? When we talk about the nuclear family, we're talking about two parents and their immediate offspring. But in other cultures, the, the definition of the family is a much more capacious one, right? Mm -hmm. There's a much more extended vision. And I don't necessarily think that when people are talking about the abolition of the family, they're talking about the abolition of the extended kin network, right? Mm -hmm. Or what we call like alloparents, like um, fictive kin in anthropology where you have like, you know, Auntie Alma, who, you know, like my daughter had a, a, a who was like my college roommate was as close to my daughter as any blood relative, right? Even though we were not related. So, so you have to be really careful about the word family. But I think that the reason why um, this is such a, it's such a, um, a nerve that gets struck is precisely the same way that people misread Marx when he talks about religion being the opiate of the masses. Mm -hmm. And if you read that full part of, of the, 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 um, the text, what you see is that, you know, um, Marx says that, that religion is the soul in a soulless world, right? Mm -hmm. Like religion makes this bearable, but it also, it also ends up kind of, um, making us complacent, right? And not fighting against the system. So it's this kind of dual edged sword. And I would say that the family is a really similar kind of thing. We need like the family um, get like our relationships with the people that we love, whether they're um, consanguineous or not, are really important to us. And so to the extent that people think of family in whatever definition that is as a group of people coming together and sharing love and resources, very few people are going to want to give like abolish that. Right. Mm -hmm. like, however you define that, 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 that idea of like a shared commitment to love and mutual support and nurturance is, is what makes like capitalism bearable for most of us. 
But I think when we talk about the family as a very specific institution that upholds and underpins patriarchal capitalism, right, so that corporations can increase their profits by exploiting the unpaid labor of caregivers in the home, when we're talking about the abolition of the family, we should be very clear that what we're trying to say is like, the family as this myth, which produces value for capitalist society out of love and care, um, that's what we're trying to trouble. That's what we're really trying to complicate is, is, is the myth of the family as a shield or a veneer or a veil over what is at the end of the day, a very exploitative relationship as mm -hmm. people like Sylvia Federici have written about. Right. Um, as opposed to like, you know, let's make kin, right? Let, I actually think that rather than abolishing the family, I think that's the wrong word. We need to radically expand the family. Mm -hmm. We need to like have as many lateral relationships with people in our lives and bring them in as kin as we possibly can. And that, I mean, you might say, some people might say, well, that's that's basically abolishing the family. But I would say, actually, I think that's like making the family as a concept more capacious and more valuable for kind of fighting against this extremely oppressive and exploitative economic system, which requires all of the emotional and caregiving labor that is done in the private sphere, but is not in any way willing to pay for it. Yeah, you know, it treats that as external. If you model this in economics, it treats all of that as external to the model. It's like, oh, no, we don't really need to get into that, <laughs> right. even though it's foundational to this model functioning. And you see so many state programs directed towards defining the family and delineating it. You know, it is actually um, a, a category that has to be controlled and enforced. And you Absolutely. see that so often. It really puts the lie to the, I don't know, kind of quaint and naive, like, it's just loving people coming together, signing a contract with the <laughs> right, state. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, and I will say that some of the places that you can really see this are in states, and I, and I believe the Netherlands as well, where they are trying to allow children to have more than two parents, right? Yeah. So mm -hmm. either because of step-parents or because of same-sex same-sex couples that want to, you know, include um, either the egg or the sperm donor in the mm -hmm. parental unit, they want to have three or more parents. And like our states freak out, like yeah. they don't want to conceptualize at more than two. Yeah. And that, I mean, the, the reality of our lives with reproductive technologies and just with step parents and serial monogamy and the way that we live, right? We um, we need to have a world in which there are more than the, the possibility of more than two parents exist. And that's mm -hmm. where we see we really see the state pushing back. Right. Because yeah. because then there are property relationships that get complicated. Yeah. Right? And, and tax relationships, tax relationships. Absolutely. Yeah. You have three people claiming this person is a dependent instead of two. I mean, there are all sorts of ways in which I think the state is very invested in a particular version of the family. And that's the version when we're talking about abolishing the family, that's the version that we're talking about, right? Because I think you look at there are polyamorous relationships that complicate this. Um, what about like, you know, and an asexual people who are living together and, and mm -hmm. want to have relations? There's so many ways in which contemporary 
life and, and contemporary sexuality has kind of grown out of the model that we have. I mean, and certainly mm -hmm. the model that Alexander Kollontai was operating with when she was writing Communism and the Family, right? Mm -hmm. so, so what we really need to do as, as, as feminists and as socialists is to go back and say, okay, well, what do we mean when we say the family and, and maybe like watch, cause like people, I mean, I think, you know, when you say abolish the family, people freak out. Yeah. It's <laughs> they really do. troubling. It is it, troubling. The way I think about it is, you know, for a long time, you could share your Netflix password and username with anyone you wanted, right? And you could have a bunch of different users sharing a resource. And then they're like, no, we've tracked your IP address. You're, One you're, household. Yeah, exactly. One household. You know, we see the way that these things are arranged. My example's a little bit facetious, but I think it's relatable. And, you know, currently, I can't remember what state it's, it's in, but there's a law to um, allow... Um, women who are pregnant to sue for paternity um, to cover medical bills and the state oh, will enforce Utah. It's Utah. Yeah. And it's, and they're saying this is a pro-life law, right? This is about supporting the mother, making sure she's healthy, making sure her medical expenses are covered. I think that kind of gets to the nucleus of this idea that even before the baby is born, you have these two people who are responsible for covering the health care, the food, the well-being of the mother right. to make sure there's a and healthy the child. Won't help you, but you can ask exactly. the dad or you can, but sue, you the can dad. sue the dad. Yeah, because that's super easy and always works. Um, I, I, I agree with all of that and not to like open up a new can of worms, but I do want to ask you, Kristen, like mm -hmm. I, I, it's not clear to me that capitalism can't absorb uh, like changing family mm -hmm. structures. So that I was so, going to say, because like, I just want to, sorry, I just want to oh, mention no, really quickly, ahead. like we know at least in the U S context, when inequality is really high, we see a marriage gap between uh, yeah. professional mm -hmm. affluent people and working class people. So, you know, right now, uh, working class people are way less likely to get married than their, you know, affluent counterparts. And it's not because they don't want to. Um, it's, you know, there, there are all of these different factors, which we've basically spent the whole show discussing. Um, yeah. But, mm -hmm. but that's just to say that, you know, marriage, ra marriage rates are clearly plummeting for the working class, but like capitalism stronger than ever. So that, you know, I, I, I just, like I said, I, I don't think it's clear to me that simply uh, expanding our idea or like our conception of what family is, is sufficient in and of itself. No. And that's yeah. why I believe that it has to be absolutely concomitant with expanded social safety nets. Right. Because the thing mm -hmm. is, is whether or not you're married, right. Whether you, you know, if your parents get ill, that responsibility largely falls on you. If your child mm -hmm. gets ill, that responsibility, like the, the state allows some states actually allow um, the, 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 the government of the state to, to look to adult children to pay for the nursing home, for instance, expenses mm -hmm. of their, of their um, parents. Um, and so there's a way in which the state actually saves resources by, by outsourcing services that would otherwise be, you know, provided by the state into the private sphere. So I think it doesn't, you know, again, it doesn't matter whether you're um, married or not married. Uh, and definitely there is a huge gap in that. And I think that's absolutely important to point out. But what I, what, what the key thing is, it's about the, the, the conception of the private sphere. It's about the conception of who is responsible for certain kinds of care work. And, you know, 
ever since the 80s, there was a wonderful paper by Diane Elson who talked about what neoliberal austerity does. Neoliberal austerity, when you slash public services for health care or for child care or for elder care, that labor doesn't go away. It just gets transformed into the private sphere. Mm-hmm. And I think that whether or not, you know, especially during the last year of the pandemic, you know, everybody is um, is is scrambling to deal with, you know, lack of childcare, lack of school, all of these things, and realizing that what the state has just done, you know, for for because of the pandemic, has just sort of been moved it into the into the um, into the private sphere, and so. When I talk about, I mean, it's not just expanding the, the the definition of the family. It's about it's about reimagining the family as something that is not in the private sphere, but that is um, that is that necessitates investments from the public sphere, right? So you have to understand that there's a kind of redistributive redistributive power that the state has. And, you know, we can get into the weeds and talk about whether that's state ownership of the means of production or taxation and redistribution or communal ownership of the algorithms of the robots that will one day control us, whatever it is that you want to, um, <laughs> that you want to, um, you, you want to get that revenue stream from the state. It's not just going to be about infrastructure or, or, or some, um, some kind of like tangible market uh, goods, but also about funding and supporting and providing a floor for all citizens under which they will not fall. Mm -hmm. And so that we understand that when we use the word family, we're talking about family as not something that is only in the private sphere, but that is um, a a legitimate uh, claimant on socialized resources. Does that make sense? I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I got really excited by Jen's question (laughs) because it overlaps with what I wanted to ask because, you know, throughout this conversation, we've been talking about two kind of tensions or dichotomies. One is, you know, the capitalist conception of love is extremely transactional. And then you can see the way in which the state like literally writes that into law or policy or code. And the the socialist conception, as you said, was more relational. Social pleasure is a social good. Desire is a kind of um, inertia within society that needs to be cultivated and expanded. But in the U.S., we've got this extreme focus on um, individual rights, individual access. And I think the question of abolishing the family draws that tension out. So we see that sexual liberation and sex ed are focusing on individual choices and responsibility and then individual freedom, right? Um, And it assumes two things. It assumes, one, that the kind of coded structure of loving relationships, whether it be the family or, you know, boyfriend or girlfriend, the way that those get fractured by property relations is like immutable. And then it assumes a secondary thing, which is that neoliberal austerity is trans historical (laughs) and permanent, right? Like we'll never get past it. So the only intervention we can make is to like let women be proud of getting an abortion, right? We can't make the intervention of, of creating that floor, like you said. So I think we've seen some like sort of interesting movements come out of this and they've been successful to varying degrees, um, but they haven't really focused so much on redistribution and material um, resources as the floor of um, the right to pleasure, to freedom of expression, whether it be for your gender or your sexuality, and to um, 
expanded kin networks, which are the the basis for most people's relationships, I think. It's not, yeah. most people aren't existing in just a delineated nuclear family. And part of that is because of capitalism, placing so much stress on that, that you have two workers and, and you have nannies and people who help with your household that become part of this expanded but marketized kinship network. Um, so I wanted to ask, you know, we see a lot of people talk about um, the possibility for subverting the dynamics of capitalism through queer relationships or through certain types of sexual orientations or um, different constellations of partnerships like polyamory. Do you feel like that will go all the way to where to, that'll get us where we need to go? I don't want to say these aren't revolutionary acts, but I think I want to try to relate that desire um, and the kind of politics that people are embedding in those types of sexuality to the conversation that we're talking about, about material and economic redistribution? Yeah. I mean, I think that's really the the sticky question, right? I mean, because, because on the one hand, I do think that anytime you, so I've been lately, I've been spending a lot of time reading about co-housing Mm -hmm. um, and eco-villages and the ways in which co-housing, like very concretely, if people come together and they live in much smaller dwellings and they share common resources like, you know, common kitchens or common, you know, appliances or whatever, um, th there are really sort of direct ecological impacts of this, right? So mm -hmm. the carbon footprint of these people who are living in these facilities or, or these uh, complexes is much lower than people who are living in individual single family homes. Um, and as well as the fact that people are less isolated and they're, they're, they're less lonely, they report higher life satisfaction and women also, there's one great 2010 study that shows that women do a hell of a lot less housework when they're living in co-housing, um, mm. right? So, so, so there's an interest. So, so, but what does that mean? That means that you're living with a kind of a group of people. There's, you know, there's some privacy, but there's a lot of sociality that's sort of built into these co-housing and, 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 you know, and, 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 and this is analogous to what you're talking about. So some people say, oh, well, co-housing will, will fix it, right? We'll fix so many problems. It'll like lower our carbon footprint and we'll become more gender egalitarian and we'll, you know, have better relationships and be less isolated. But then lo and behold, what happens is that capitalism comes in and all these developers are now bringing, you know, uh, building co-housing um, and making a pretty penny on, you know, essentially mm -hmm. commodifying people's loneliness and isolation, which I just find so depressing. Um, and I and I fear that some of the narrative around, you know, having um, sort of non heteronormative relationships as a kind of way to undermine capitalism, that the same sort of thing happens to, to you know, that that it's very easy to co-opt that into mm -hmm. the, the logics of capital and and that the key move that that we're talking about is this idea of. Um, expanding social safety nets so that so much of the labor and caregiving that is done in the private sphere becomes the concern of the entire society. Like, the, like the, our definition of the family is something that is um, in need of and legitimately um, should have the support of socialized resources in some way. Mm -hmm. So, so you know, it's, it's like this sort of... Um, it's always this kind of, of tension of like, okay, well, we can take the like the first steps of co-housing or, you know, living in an eco village or, you know, trying to push against um, the status quo 
by living in, in, in what are called like pocket utopias, right? So you mm-hmm. sort of cordon yourself off. Um, you build a world or a community. And in fact, you know, one of the really interesting co-housing communities that I was studying is a over 55 LGBTQ plus community, right? Mm-hmm. Where they're building a, a they're building a co-housing facility so they can all live together and uh, like have a great time. And um, and I think that's fantastic. Um, and to the extent that they're lowering their carbon footprint and the, to the extent that they're finding community with each other, that's great. Does it actually end up challenging the larger status quo? You know, there's even some evidence that it might end up perpetuating certain kinds of health inequalities because mm-hmm. housing is very expensive and it tends mm-hmm. to be a certain kind of liberal, wealthy, white, middle class group of people who who offer this kind of housing. I mean, I think, you know, on the one hand, I want to say, you know, and, and especially steeped as I am in the in the history of the East European context of like, how far do we go? Um, and do we and are we really going to throw shade on people who are trying to take baby steps rather than mm-hmm. the big steps that we think are necessary? I don't I just you know, I, I struggle with that all the time, because on the one hand, I sort of think, well, if everybody took baby steps. And if everybody could sort of, you know, imagine a, a sort of post heterosexual monogamous nuclear family relationship, we would become, we would raise our children and we would all become sort of more cooperative. That's one way of thinking about it. But then the other part of it is, well, no, maybe that just ends up becoming a way to reproduce privilege and, and inequality. Mm-hmm. And I just, I think it's really, really hard to parse those things out. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's sort of like, on the one hand, I think it's a it's a necessary but not sufficient mm-hmm. step mm-hmm. towards the kind of world that many of us are imagining. And you know, again, like I I don't want to I don't want to um, belittle the importance of that step. But at the end of the day, I do think we have to think beyond just making certain kinds of tweaks in our private lives and really think about transformational politics in the public sphere much more widely. So Kristen, I think we have to let you go now, but I just want to say uh, thank you for coming on. And I hope that lots of people clicked on this video because it has sex in the title and then got to talk <laughs> on the Russian revolution. <laughs> yeah. 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 We didn't even show the more salacious graphics that we yeah, had Yeah. I, I was Can kind of a little Kale, bit Flash those really quickly. <laughs> there you go. Clitorises, right. ladies. Gentlemen um, and others. In Russian. In yeah, Russian. it's actually in Bulgarian. But oh, okay. What's oh. so great about that little, I mean, I just, I think that's so interesting because it's it's sort of a diagram for men of this is what it mm-hmm. looks like when it's normal. This is what it looks like when it's aroused. And this is what it looks like right before the orgasm. <laughs> yeah. So, then you can track your progress. Yeah. If that's exactly. what your goal is. But, but the idea <laughs> that a communist government, right? I mean, like, what? think about what you know about the Eastern Bloc in the 20th <laughs> century, right? And to think that this that this book was like the second most popular book in the GDR, right? After mm-hmm. like a gardening handbook, it's upside down. Yeah, there you go. Um, and, um, and the fact that it was translated into so many languages, it was in Cuba, it was in Bulgaria, it, there's a, another version of it in Bulgaria. Um, it, it went to Czechoslovakia, it actually made it to West Germany, because it was so, um, you know, detailed. 
like it just goes to show you that it you know it doesn't require the schnabel the guy who wrote the book he was a state funded sexologist you know all mm-hmm. of his research was being funded by the east german state and here he was i mean the very first pages of this book are about the orgasm gap. Like men have this many, mm-hmm. women have this many. This is a problem. We are an egalitarian society. We need to have a more egalitarian distribution. Yeah. Let's apply redistribution everywhere. Right. Let's apply redistribution <laughs> everywhere. And I just think, you know, when people, you know, like I'm not making this up, right? It's literally in black and white. Like you could, if you can read yeah. Bulgarian or German, you can read it for yourself, you know? So, and I think what people's like Im- imagination of 20th century state socialism, it's just really hard for them to get their head around that, right? That, that it was a concern and that sex education and good quality, high quality sex education, right? Like real sex education, not mm-hmm. only about, um, you know, uh, preventing STDs and birth control, but actually about pleasure, mm-hmm. yeah. right? Um, that that was part and parcel of these of these East European societies. Again, because as I said, they thought of sexuality as a social good, right? The more and the better it was, the happier the people would be, and and the more harmonious the society. I mean, it's a weird. It's a weird way of thinking about it, um, but it is it is how they thought about it, and they they and they spent a lot of resources and expended a lot of expertise in 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 talking about it. So I think it's always worth you know Im- trying to get outside the United States mm-hmm. um, and and thinking about how these things are discussed and conceived of, you know, in in, in not only other countries but in other political economic contexts. Yeah, very different than the consent forward legalistic framework that we have now. And really good because you can't say what you don't like if you don't know what you do like. So allowing people to understand themselves and and others helps with consent. We just need to, yeah, we've got to broaden it out for everything in the U.S. Absolutely. Redistribute pleasure, redistribute <laughs> resources, resources, and do what you want exactly. <laughs> with who exactly. you want. As long as they want it to. (laughs) Right. And we would all be so much happier if we weren't worried. You know, we, 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 there's this epidemic of precarity and, you know, we're talking Mm -hmm. about the pandemic of the coronavirus. Let's talk about the pandemic of precarity, the pandemic of isolation, the pandemic of mental health problems that capitalism has engendered in our society. Like if you, you know, Mark Fisher's work here on capitalist realism is so important. I think that we have to really think, you know, that when we're talking, you know, I get criticized all the time for how could you talk about sex, right? In Eastern Europe, like those societies were mm-hmm. so awful, you know, Stalin. And yeah, the I think we had a couple comments like that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> people are, I mean, I understand. And I, I and I, it's fair enough that that's a fair critique. Like that just seems so to people, you know, um, who lived in Eastern Europe or to people mm-hmm. who about the, the the real atrocities of some of these East European countries, they're thinking like, what? So 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 what? Right? They had good sex education. Yeah. So what? They had reproductive rights. So what? Women had equal status. Well, I think that the the the, the interesting thing here is, well, yeah. So what? What it, yeah. what does that actually mean? And and how mm-hmm. did they manage that? Given that they were so totalitarian and authoritarian and evil, as you think, that they could have easily done away with those things, yeah. as yeah. they did, by the way, in Romania after 1966. They just could have, they, they didn't have to do it. So why did they? Yeah. That's the interesting question. And why did it work? 
And why did it work? Yeah. It doesn't mean that to take those lessons means you are then becoming totalitarian. You can look at Iceland. You can look at Sweden, Finland, the Netherlands. You can look at France. In Japan, they're paying people to take time off of work to have sex. This isn't limited to this, um, but your work does such a great job of parsing out um, the exact dynamics between individual feelings and experiences and state institutions. And I'm just so grateful we were able to have you on. I feel like we could talk to you for another five hours. <laughs> I know. We should go back to the abolish the family right. question. I've got a lot to say. <laughs> oh, believe me, we will. <laughs> That's a follow-up episode now. Jen and I talk about this a lot. Yeah, so you're definitely invited to round two. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, a lot of people don't realize that in Plato's Republic, I mean, he abolished the family. (laughs) He did. Plato, you know, we were talking a long time ago. He was like, you know, for my guardians, I think it's a better idea if we don't have nuclear families. We should raise our children in common and, you know, and we should have like this sort of group marriage. Um, you tell that to, 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 to platonic, you know, scholars or ancient philosophers and they're like, yeah, well, we sort of ignore that part. (laughs) We don't want to talk about that because that's, you know, a little bit difficult to, 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 uh, you know, to comprehend. So, yeah. Yeah. We'll have to have you back. You can give us like a literary review of the family. family. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. Thank you. Just an incredible conversation. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. That was great. Um, yeah, I could do that forever. Yeah. <laughs> Again, I, I I don't know if that's what people were expecting who clicked on a video with sex in the title, but this is what you got. Uh, so It's what you're always going to get, actually, it's, it's on the Jacobin Show. Yeah. So welcome <laughs> to the Jacobin Show. Um, I want to just remind everybody really quickly to please hit like and subscribe so we can get Kristen Godsey back, uh, as well as plenty of other guests. Um, any any last words, Ariella? I also want, sorry, I just want to remind everybody that Ariella's book, Socialist Sex Ed, is forthcoming from Verso. That'll be out at some point in 2022. So stay tuned. Uh, I, we will be talking more about that, I'm sure. Yeah, we should have a follow-up show with Kristen. And I would just remind people to read her books. They're, her work is yeah. incredible. I love um, the kind of political anthropology that she's doing. Um, I think that we need more of this. She has a level of nuance and respect for the subject, incredible researcher and historian. I I just can't recommend them highly enough. Agree. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess on that note, uh, thanks everybody for watching and we'll see you next week. Yeah. Good night and keep expanding your kin networks. (laughs) Good night, guys.